This a success off another breath. This the first step in searching to be nothing less than be the best in what you do to prove their strength in being you. Learn so much in chasing dreams that I never would in school. What's going on, guys? Kieran Headley here from the Pocket Coach Podcast, the place where we bring mental health and performance together through a focus on both mindfulness and neuroscience. So with this, we normally either bring on doctors or specialists in their fields, or you get myself, Coach Keza, spinning a yarn about a certain topic. And today, that's exactly what we're doing. We're speaking about anxiety, a very common human experience, more so than many believe. In fact, you listening, even if you tell yourself right now in this moment, Karen, I don't have anxiety. I can guarantee there have been instances where anxiousness, anxiety has in some shape or form ruled your life in some way. It's more common than you think. It's more common than you realize. And it's absolutely uh, in more people's lives more often than they even realize. So we're going to speak on that topic because it's not just a mental illness. It's an entire mental uh, experience that is very common in every human being. I'm going to share a bit about my experience, what anxiety actually is, where it comes from, why it's there, and steps to take to start to reverse anxiety so that we can come to a greater state of peace, just like the kanji symbol behind me representing peace for those that are watching this on video. So... We're also going to touch on panic attacks. I feel like I could do actually a whole podcast on panic attacks, which we will. We'll touch on it today very briefly at the end. First, we must understand anxiety though. So let's first start with a little bit about my story about where anxiety is coming for me. But in order for me to even tell my story, I must share very briefly story about an amazing gentleman who has impacted my life in a very positive way. And his name is Caleb Rickard. He was a very good friend of mine. At one time, he was the guy that I spent more time with than any, any other friend. And uh, <laughs> we used to uh, uh, go out and hotbox my car every now and again, uh, literally every week. Uh, after work, I was working at um, as a barman and as a waiter at um, yeah, a local uh, lounge bar, not far from me right now, actually. And uh, he, he's the one that taught me how to waiter. He's the one that taught me quite a bit in the bar as well. And uh, yeah, I, I became really close with this guy, um, Caleb, fantastic guy. Um, yeah, and would go out and uh, do a little hot box <laughs> and uh, get a little high. And um, yeah, shouldn't have driven, and we did. Um, ah, and would go to McDonald's, wind down the window, and what would happen? A whole lot of smoke would fly out the window. <laughs> and would order uh, Kit Kat or Malteser McFlurries with extra chocolate sauce. Wow, that was a winner. So, yeah, long story short, um, Caleb suffered quite tremendously from anxiety. I didn't really know too much about anxiety at the time. Um, didn't really, didn't really conceptualize it, understand it fully, because uh, I knew that I was depressed, right? I was very deeply depressed myself, um, yet I didn't understand anxiety. Now, uh, fast forward a few more years later, um, about two years later, 
I was not a few more. So there you go. I was actually living in Australia and uh, I decided that I'd come back. Uh, I'd move back home. This was, yeah, actually not closer to three years later. I decided I'd move back home after living in Australia. And um, yeah, I did. And um, not long after I'd moved back and bear in mind, actually, during this time, I'd come back to visit Caleb for his birthday um, I'd spoken briefly when I was overseas, not too much. I was very bad at keeping in contact when I'm overseas <laughs> with my friends back home. And, um, uh, yeah, I remember getting a message from him. Um, and I asked, oh, actually I messaged him and I asked him, Hey bro, how, how have things been? What's been going on? And he messaged me, Hey man, things haven't been too good to be honest. And, um, so I messaged back, Hey, okay, well, let's catch up sometime soon. Hey. And a few days later, uh, he took his life. Um, I got a message from a mutual friend of ours. Um, and yeah, she, or a call rather. And yeah, she told me the news. Uh, didn't feel real for a while. And um, yeah, I hadn't really, to be honest, been in really close contact with him for a while. For, you know, a good few months. And um, yeah, I felt so guilty. I felt like I could have done something. Just this massive, overwhelming experience of guilt came through me. And I remember being at his funeral and thinking to myself, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to do something about the mental health issues here in New Zealand, about mental health issues in general. So that's actually thanks to Caleb, honestly, because he's been such an inspiration for me and the way that he lived his life and the way that he touched my life, honestly. Um, And what his life represents to me is actually quite honestly the reason why I've actually gone on this path. Um, so it's actually thanks to Caleb Rickard that I'm here today speaking to you, not just about anxiety, but just in general, the why, why the pocket coach exists, why uh, I do the work I do as an anxiety coach, the reason why I chose anxiety. I've experienced both mental health uh, struggles, by the way. Um, the reason why I chose anxiety was because of a depression was because of my friend Caleb. And, um, yeah, basically, uh, I started going through a lot of panic attacks myself and anxiety attacks myself. Um, fast forward another two years from then, I was living in Quebec, feeling incredibly lonely. Um, I was in a relationship with a beautiful, beautiful human, beautiful lady. Um, it just, we just weren't a good fit. Um, our values were aligned in a different way. And I had a lot of jealousy as well in that, in that relationship, not for anything that she did purely from an insecurity of mine. And I would constantly have panic attacks, anxiety attacks. I was in the mall. I'd have a panic attack when I was with my friend. I'd have a panic attack at home for no reason. I'd have a panic attack. Well, I know the reason now. I'd have a panic attack um, when I was with her, when I was out hiking. It was horrible. Ruled my life. Ruled my life. It was the most crippling, crippling experience, and I don't wish it on anyone. I remember this one moment. I was sitting on my couch in my apartment in Quebec. I was looking into the corner of my room, of the lounge I was sitting in, my lounge. And I said to myself, even if, even if I don't get anything in this life that I want, a partner that I end up living with for my entire life, um, kids, um, lots of money, uh, my ideal idea of success, Um, approval from my parents, even if I don't get any of this stuff. I just want to be peaceful. I am so sick of feeling this way. I just want to feel peaceful. 
I'd wish that so much for myself. And then the second thing I thought to myself was, I wouldn't even wish this on my worst enemy. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. It's the most horrible, horrible thing to feel. And I, I, my heart goes out to anyone that's listening to this and anyone that isn't even that experiences anxiety to that degree or depression to that degree or any mental health issue for that matter to that degree. It is horrible. It's this endless dark abyss that feels like it goes on forever and there's almost this seemingly no hope for any sort of light. And it exists deep within more people than you would even realize it may even exist in you. And some don't even realize that it exists in them. They just have are so adjusted to it and normalized by it that it just feels like life. No, it's not life. There's so much more to life and it's so much more possible than you'll believe to actually move through that seemingly dark abyss that just goes on forever. So I'll speak on that a little. And those thoughts that I had there are actually why I, um, alongside the motivation of Caleb and his life, uh, why I started on this journey. So that was my anxiety journey, quite a lot of it anyway. Um, I remember reflecting on many moments when I did live in Australia and I looked back and I'm like, oh wow, I actually had quite a few, I had a few panic attacks. I remember one time I was um, in my, uh, I was in my apartment and uh, I was living with my girlfriend at the time and I just started curling up on the couch and gasping for air. <laughs> And I was, I, I didn't know what was going on. I was freaking out. And my girlfriend came over to me. She was even cooking me dinner. Like, I mean, everything seemed great. I was at university. Things seemed, like when I look at my life then, I'm like, man, life was good. <laughs> and here I was having a, pa a full-on panic anxiety attack. And I, um, yeah, and she came over and asked me what was wrong. I said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I just kept repeating the words. I don't know. I was so lost and confused and scared. And yeah, then after a little while it dissipated and that was from my memory now. And I'm actually quite sure I have a feeling that I had have had panic attacks prior to that. Um, but I don't have recollection, recollection of them because I spent quite a lot of my middle school and high school years quite disassociated with life. I was, it's quite like quite a lot of it is actually quite blank for me because I disassociated from life because I was, well, I know I was very depressed and actually quite anxious even then. I just wasn't aware of either. Depression came into my awareness sooner than anxiety and then anxiety eventually came as you're aware of now. And what was it that started to shift this? That's probably what you're asking now. But but before we go to what was it that started to shift it, I want to touch on first what is anxiety? Because anxiety is not just the panic attacks or anxiety attacks. And you might be sitting here or, you know, standing here or whatever you're doing, <laughs> listening and be thinking, well, Karen, like, that's that's not my experience of anxiety. You know, it's this or, you know, it's not that intense or you know, it's just stress. Well, no, trust me. Um, stress is a very subtle version of anxiety. Anxiety is an amplified version of stress and uh, it's just got an extra attachment to it, which is fear. And that creates a certain reaction in the system that we'll explain. We'll go into a little bit of the science of it and what happens in the system when it happens. 
So whether it's stress or you're getting full-blown panic attacks on the daily, tuning in fully from now on because all the bits and pieces of information that I share from here on out will absolutely be helpful and possibly as long as you take action on these things, quite literally shift your entire experience with anxiety going forward. So long as you implement things that I share fully. So promise me that. Now, anxiety, what is it? Anxiety is this innate experience of fear, this deep experience of fear that is amplified. So it's this fear that something is or could happen at any moment. It's a strong sense of fear of the unknown. It's a strong sense of fear of the uncertain. The moment that there's certainty and there's known, anxiety starts to dissipate. The common factor of anxiety is the unknown or uncertain, which is why people hide away in their room, because it's comfortable, it's certain, it's known. Right Now people have panic attacks in their room even. Why? Because in their mind now, there's uncertain, there's unknown. So just because they're hiding away physically, they can't get away from it mentally. So what the key here is, is coming to a place where we either feel completely safe in the unknown or, and or, we, are, we fix everything so it's known. <laughs> Unfortunately, the second, the latter option isn't, it's not a practical option. It's not a feasible or even possible option. We can't make everything this life known. The nature of life is that it is unknown. The nature of this life is that, um, you know, not only are we unknown ourselves, I mean, if we don't even know ourselves, how are we going to know another, let alone all these billions of people and then also billions of creatures and billions of circumstances and situations and emotions and thoughts? How are we going to manage all of these things? We can't. So we can't really come to a known, unfortunately. So it's really developing a place of safety and security within ourselves to a point where we feel safe in the unknown and uncertain. So firstly, anxiety is a reaction that occurs within in a hyper state. So when we come across a situation, experience, or even thought process that has some form of memory within us or triggers some form of memory within us, that is perceived as a threat by the brain. So, if I am in a situation right now, for example, say I'm in a situation right now, and something happens in my environment, or I have a thought process because of something maybe I'm speaking about, and it triggers a memory, or it is similar to that of a memory. So if it triggers a memory, or or it is similar to that of a memory, where I've experienced pain, to a certain extent in my past, anxiety will arise. Why? Because my system will react to it with one of three options, fight, freeze, or flight. The three Fs, <laughs> not fuck, frick, or freaking, <laughs> but fight, freeze, or flight. So if that's the case, if my system's going to react based on either thought or an experience around me that either 
brings up a memory or represents something similar to that of a memory where I've experienced pain in the past. The reason why the brain does this is because it forms a protection uh, reaction or some a reaction that is of a protection mechanism in order to keep me safe. This is vital for our survival, but it's absolutely not vital for our happiness. The thing is, if you're listening to this, then your comforts and conveniences in life are to a state where your survival is well taken care of. You're not out scavenging for food, right? You're not... Um, you know, having to hunt every meal, unless that's your choice, of course, <laughs> right? You're not what, running away from enemy tribes every single day of your life. You're not having to keep an eye out for any enemy spies. We're not there anymore. We're not primitive like that anymore. So because our brains spent quite literally 2 million years, if not longer, right? They estimate 300,000 years since we developed the cognitive capabilities that we have, right? And then of course, 2 million years since our brain's been developing into that. We've spent most of our time in a state of survival. It's only more recently that cerebral capability, in other words, the outer membrane of the brain, right? Membrane of the brain, gosh, that's a mouthful, has come into play where we can plan and execute on plans and emotionally regulate and um, logically think, critically think, and actually go about certain conscious uh, actions and processes that we were never able to before prior to 300,000 years ago. So ultimately, um, we spent so much time developing this, and it's only really in the last you know, few hundred to couple of thousand years where things have start, started to become more comfortable and convenient, and our survival has been more taken care of. So these mechanisms are still in our brain very strongly, very intensely, which is why survival is a primary process that comes up. So even if I don't want to fear, fear or freak out or get anxious, it doesn't matter what I want. My brain's just trying to protect me. So if I experience a painful experience growing up throughout my life at any point, this doesn't necessarily just mean my first seven years of life when you know, our brain's in more to, of a development state, the three theta brain state, particularly not just the first seven years, but the first 15 years actually, because our brain is in a state of constantly, uh, is the most plastic during those first 15 years, we're constantly building and wiring new neurons in the brain up until puberty. After that, um, we're constantly, um, we, we stop developing as easily new neurological patterns, okay, and new groups of neurons in the brain, and our brain starts to delete them over time. So we can still, um, experience absolutely new learnings over new painful experiences or new profound experiences. However, it just becomes a little more difficult. So moral of the story, okay, or the moral of the topic that I'm getting to around the, this uh, topic on the brain is that uh, the first 15 years is the most uh, crucial in terms of whether or not we're going to develop painful memories that we're going to, that we could use as something to react to. And then after that, it's still possible. It's just not going to be as intense unless we experience something very painful. Now, as I mentioned, if I have a memory, or sorry, if I have a thought that um, brings up one of those memories, or I'm in, say, a situation right now that is similar to that of a past experience, as I've already mentioned before, that represents a past experience or is similar to that of a past experience, my brain doesn't even need to actually show me the image of my past experience. 
all that has to happen is something similar to that of my past experience. It could be I've been rejected in my past to the point where I felt very depressed. Now I'm terrified of rejection. I'm not going to remember that specific rejection, but if I get rejected now, that experience of that rejection is going to be just as intensely painful. The same groups of neurons that triggered during my very painful rejection years ago will be triggered as well, and therefore the same experience will happen even though it's a different situation. Okay, It's the same with uh, if you're in a relationship, okay, and it's a completely different person, and say they say something that represents that of what someone else said in a past relationship that was tremendously uh, painful for you, okay? Now, let's put ex-partner as person A and new partner as person B, right? Ex-partner who's person A might have um, said it in a way that, yes, probably intended more pain, right? And probably intended more harm because maybe they're angry or frustrated or whatever, right? Now, person B might not have mentioned it or meant it in that way. They might have actually genuinely meant it very kindly, Right? and out of compassion and love. But because you've got that past memory with person A, your brain instantly takes it as if it's going to happen like with person A. Now you're going to trigger the exact same groups of neurons that developed within that painful experience from the past. So you're going to have the exact same uh, physical, emotional, and mental in in energetic experience in that moment, even though it's a different person, different intent, simply because it represents a past situation. And you don't even need to have that memory either. You don't even need to actually recall that past experience. You'll just feel anxious, afraid, and threatened in that moment. So you'll react, either fight, freeze, or flight, get angry, or regress, or freeze, and not know what to say. Okay? So this is a very natural uh, situation. Now, Yes, there's hereditary aspects. We'll talk about that on another podcast. Not today. It's too much. There's too much depth around epigenetics to get into. So instead, I'll just mention that there are hereditary aspects that yes come into play based on past generations of trauma that yes get passed down. Absolutely. But there's no anxiety uh, gene. There's no depression gene. It's simply a gene uh, that represents some form of fear. And um, in order to protect us from that thing that our past generations have been threatened by, right, in order to protect us, right? So therefore, we get triggered in a specific way based on what the, um, the epigene represents in terms of how we should react in that moment. So yes, we can get passed down those things. And we can also unlearn these things. We can also condition ourselves in a way where these things don't activate. Condition ourselves in a way where even if these things have been activating, they no longer do activate. So we can, whether it's hereditary or whether it's learned through nurture, either way, we can learn to come to a place where we become no longer anxious. How? How is that? Again, I'll get to that. So let's explain chemically what happens when you have anxiety. Firstly, when you experience a triggering um, situation, or you know, you just get triggered in general, either by, again, a memory that comes up or a situation that represents that of a painful experience in your past. You don't even need to recall the memory for that. A massive amount of epinephrine, adrenaline in the body, nor epinephrine, adrenaline in the brain, okay, that's, gen that's generally what it means, cortisol, all this gets stimulated. So all of a sudden you're just flooded with stress hormone. 
your entire nervous system, your brain goes into a state of fight, freeze or flight in order to protect itself. Now, because you're in fight, freeze or flight, you're requiring a, a strong amount of energy because ultimately you need to perform at your peak because if you need to fight something, you need to perform at your peak. You're fighting for your life. If you need to run away, you need to run away at your peak because you're running for your life. Okay, if you're freezing, you need to freeze freaking well because <laughs> there's you know something there that's probably sensing movement. So you need to really freeze. Okay, so that's fight, freeze, or flight. You need to do it very well. That requires a lot of energy. Okay, and a lot of alertness. Because that's the case, the heart needs to send a whole lot of oxygen and nutrients throughout the system to keep the muscles uh, active, very active, and very capable of contracting and constricting very efficiently and effectively, which is why you hear about mothers lifting cars off their child, Okay, which is why you hear about these extraordinary superhuman events because of this massive amount of epinephrine that's been flowing through your system, right? So... During this, with the heart palpitations happening, okay, a massive amount of oxygen is demanded. So what actually ends up happening is there's a strong uh, craving or deep desire to hyperventilate. <sighs> actually, it just happens, right? But ultimately, that craving is still there if you try to control it. Now, what the system does when it realizes that there's no perceived threat around I'm freaking out for no no potential reason from the looks of it, right? Unless, of course, you know, there's actually a physical reason why I can see why I should be anxious. It's a different story. But if I can't see why I should be anxious, instantly a, a massive surge of serotonin will come through the system. Okay, the calming chemical. It's the calming and have enough chemical. All right, it's... Not only a hormone, it's also a neurotransmitter, which means it fires off in the brain. It sends signals through the brain, so it can activate very quickly because hormones flow activate very slowly. So it's not actually serotonin, the hormone. It's serotonin, the neurotransmitter that gets triggered in this moment because it, it, it in, induces a calming effect on the system, All right? Which is why some people feel high after panic attacks, okay? So you don't necessarily have to have a panic attack for this whole experience to happen. You might just feel stressed, right? Which is why people breathe in their chest. <laughs> and they breathe a little bit faster when they're stressed. It just happens naturally. Why? Because there's a demand for oxygen. Okay. So ultimately, all of this is happening quite literally within a split second. All of a sudden, everything shifts. Everything um, gets triggered. And you're going through all these experiences. Now, of course, if you are um, assure about why you're anxious, okay? Your cortisol, your epinephrine, your norepinephrine will stay elevated until you come to a place where either it's fixed or it's fixing, okay? Or you, you finally realize that actually this isn't going to kill me. I'm going to be okay, okay? Or you fatigue, okay? If any of those things happening, a massive surge of serotonin, right? Which is why some people black out because all of a sudden, not only do they uh, get, go from a really heightened level, elevation level of strong heart rate and demand for oxygen, okay? All of a sudden, the serotonin, gets uh, floods the system so drastically and dramatically that the down regulation is so intense that they can faint. Okay, so these things can happen. And it's very, actually, it's honestly, as long as this isn't happening on a daily basis and, you know, constantly, and it's and it's been happening daily for many months, if not years, then it's actually not going to be detrimental 
It's not going to be dangerous unless it consistently happens, 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 happens. People put this on a pedestal, which they should not because it makes people scared of anxiety. Now people get anxious about having anxiety and that causes more anxiety. That's so detrimental. Please don't put it on a pedestal and recognize that actually it, even though it sucks, even though it's painful, I know because I've had it, right? I've, I haven't had anxiety by the way for um, about two and a half years now. I've had anxious experiences, but anxiety as it's defined Okay, I haven't been overwhelmed by it. I haven't had a panic attack for yeah, um, about two and a half years now, which has been a blessing. And I have many people to thank for helping me along that path. And we'll touch on that again very soon, very shortly. So, with all this happening, what we actually want to do, the very first thing we want to do if we experience anxiety, is not calm our breathing. Because as I mentioned before, there's a demand for oxygen. Now, what happens when you're stressed is you've got certain uh, sacs in your lungs, around your lungs, called alveoli. Okay, So these sacs, what they do is they're responsible for exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide with your system and with, of course, your surroundings. So you breathe in oxygen. These sacs inflate. And they actually, what they do is they help uh, flood the blood with this oxygen so then you can send oxygen throughout your system and then because what happens is uh, this converts into carbon dioxide these sacs also fill up with carbon dioxide when you are just about to exhale and then when you exhale the sacs draw, um, excrete the carbon dioxide into the lungs so that when you exhale you exhale carbon dioxide so these sacs are crucial for the oxygen carbon dioxide exchange that happens within the lungs. Now, when you're stressed, these collapse. They completely collapse, right? Because I'm not entirely sure about the exact reasoning, but from my understanding, carbon dioxide uh, becomes very heightened when you're stressed as there is some utilization during a stressful experience for carbon dioxide. So basically these collapse, you have a high amount of carbon dioxide, but then because it's a high demand for oxygen in the system, right, you, um, you hyperventilate. But unfortunately, just a simple, <sighs> yes, it's going to help with oxygen. It's also not going to be a potent uh, experience of actually using this oxygen because you're breathing it in, but these sacs have deflated, meaning the amount of oxygen you're actually using from the oxygen you're breathing in is very minimal. So there's a very simple way to shift this. Okay, I'm going to touch on that. So firstly, you don't want to calm your breathing because calming your breathing is counterproductive here. Um, like if you're slowing down your breathing, your body need and your brain needs oxygen. Okay, you're using so much of it, you need oxygen. The worst thing you can do is actually just slow your breathing down straight away. All right, we do that soon, but we don't do that straight away. The first thing we want to do is actually go with it. Go with it. Don't resist it. Go with it. So... is the first thing we want to start doing is taking deep breaths even better even through the nose is actually better okay so it's more controlled through the nose so in doing that intensely through the nose it actually helps us go with it it's actually going to induce a slightly more present experience because it's what it's doing is it's sending a whole lot of blood flow to our prefrontal cortex, our control center, giving us a greater capability to take control and command in that moment. So taking lots of oxygen is good. 
once we go with it and we, we've gotten a rhythm of that, we feel a little bit more present and a little bit more capable of taking command and control. We shift our breath to a double inhale and an exhale. And we do that just for a little while. Do a few of those breaths. And the reason why we do a double inhale is because the second inhale, it reinflates the sacs, the alveoli and lungs, so that you can actually continue the efficient, the efficient exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide within the system. How cool. We do this already naturally when we cry. We do it when we, when we yawn. People would do it when they're running. And from some of my clients' experiences, they do it when they smoke. The reason why we do it is because when our brain naturally is demanding oxygen, when we're tired, it induces stress in the system, collapses the, um, the alveoli in the lungs, and therefore we actually the brain demands oxygen. So it says yawn, right? So yes, yawning is a way of gaining, uh, reinflating those sacs and gaining more oxygen. Um, and also we induce a sigh if we experience a lot of stress. Right? We'll take a deep breath all of a sudden, and that's also going to reinflate the sacs. But the most efficient way to do it is a double inhale and exhale. Your dog does it before it takes a nap. Okay, uh, Your cat will do it. Anything that has uh, the capacity of inhaling oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide will do this naturally in some shape or form. Okay. So we want to take advantage by doing it consciously um, so we can use it in this moment. And this helps us to ground ourselves and enhances the amount of oxygen in our system quite quickly. Once we've done that, then we slow our breathing. Either four seconds in through the nose, seven seconds hold, and then eight seconds out through the mouth like you're blowing a straw through a straw. And you do that, you repeat that a minimum of six times. Or you go even longer. I prefer this breath, which is six seconds in, eight seconds hold. 10 seconds out like blowing through a straw. And as you continue to listen, I want to invite you to do even three rounds, just three, or even ideally six rounds of this, unless you're driving, because you actually induce calmness in your system so strongly that <laughs> you become less reactive. So if you're driving... Uh, you, you probably want reaction to be actually somewhat <laughs> there because you need to react to your surroundings. It's important. But if you're walking, you're cooking, you're, um, you know, you're just you know, sitting down or whatever you're doing, um, practice, continue to practice this, right? Either four seconds in, seven seconds hold, eight seconds out, or six seconds in, eight second hold, 10 seconds out. The two breaths are called either four, seven, eight or six, eight, 10. Those are the two names. Right? You can hold at the bottom if you wish. But ultimately, following this breath pattern, the most crucial part of this pattern is that the exhale is longer than the inhale. That is it. That is the most crucial part. Because when you inhale, your diaphragm moves down. The volume and where your heart is expands, so your heart grows bigger. It literally does. Okay, There's actually video imaging of this occurring. Your heart grows bigger. The volume of your heart grows bigger. As this happens, blood throws through your heart much quicker. Okay. 
Oh, sorry, more. Um, sorry, heart. Sorry, blood flows through, through through your heart more slowly because there's more volume of heart. Okay, because there's more volume, flows more slowly. So the brain sends a signal to the heart to say speed up. Okay, so when you're inhaling, your heart will go faster. When you're exhaling, your diaphragm moves up. Your heart, the space where your heart is, shrinks. So the volume of your heart shrinks slightly. Blood through, flows through your heart quicker. So your brain sends a signal to your heart to say, slow down. So when you spend more time exhaling, you're slowing your heart rate down more quickly, which is ideal. So if you can do those three steps, go with it. Or that's the first step. Once you've regained a little bit more control, the second step is, is the grounding breath, the double inhale. If you can't do it through your nose, do it through your mouth, that's okay. And then the third step is again, ideally through the nose, but if you can't through the mouth, the either four, seven, eight breath or the six, eight, 10 calming breath. Choose one, do six rounds minimum. Once you're more present and once you're more calm, take a moment of gratitude for completely shifting an experience that used to induce a lot of anxiety. And you've completely transformed your experience in that moment to gaining more control. The more that you prove to yourself that you can gain control with anxiety when it arises, the safer you'll feel about anxiety. And only from here, when you feel safer about anxiety, can you truly start to shift out of it. That's the very first thing that I want to share. And I know it took a little while to really share on that and touch on that. But I'm going to start to, as well, now touch on very briefly, and also I did get them shifted around. I was going to touch on anxiety first, then panic attacks, but um, that just came naturally. So here we are. <laughs> and now we're going to touch on, okay, well, what can I do in everyday life to really shift the things that cause anxiety? The first thing I will say to that is that nothing uh, around you is causing anxiety. The only thing that's causing anxiety is actually what's in your mind, in your brain. The things around you are simply triggering what's in your brain, what's in your mind. So when you say that causes me anxiety or that gives me anxiety, no, 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 no. It's your brain that's giving you anxiety. That's only triggering the, the, those groups of neurons to be triggered in your brain that trigger the experience of that anxiety experience. So there's only two things, only two, because I've narrowed it down to two. Okay, And yes, there's broader aspects to this, but two things that cure anxiety. One is presence. Because presence is not a space where you're in the mind. Presence is in the space where you actually exist here with no thought. Once you're here, once you're fully present, if you take a deep breath with me. And then start to observe your surroundings. If you're driving, notice your hands on the steering wheel and what's in front of you. If you're walking, notice your surroundings. If you're sitting, notice your surroundings and start to see everything in high definition. Take another deep breath. And see everything even more clearly than you did just then. Very clearly. Recognize exactly what you're doing. Recognize the sounds, the smells, the tastes, what you're touching, 
because you really recognize everything that's in your moment right now. This is the present moment. Not because you're thinking about the present moment. Thinking about the present moment isn't being present. You're still in thought. You're still in mind. Okay. But actually being present, when you're fully present, when you're actually present, no thought can exist. Not in the present moment. And where thought cannot exist, nor can conditioning. Because conditioning is the utilization of thought. Okay, conditioning leads to more thought as well. <laughs> it compounds. So ultimately, when we're present, we don't have the conditioning, we don't have the thought, therefore we cannot have anxiety because anxiety is in the conditioning. Without conditioning, if I gave you, if I took out a part of your brain that had all the memory in the world, you couldn't experience anxiety because you've got nothing to uh, relate to any anxious experience or problematic experience you've had in the past, therefore nothing can trigger you. There'll still be the survival mechanisms when everyone, every human is naturally afraid of heights, okay? You'll still get anxious on heights. <laughs> you'll still get anxious in um, dangerous situations, right? Like if the tiger appeared, you'll just naturally know that it's dangerous. So ultimately, all these different things, right, will still trigger you. But in terms of actually what would normally trigger your anxiety, relationships, rejection, um, risk, uh, finances, whatever, right? these things will no longer affect it. Why? Because you've got no learning or, or collection of memory to reflect on and compare to your current experience to. Okay, so therefore anxiety cannot exist when you're fully present. So when you learn to be more present, and that's a learning that takes years. Don't worry, the second option is a little bit quicker. <laughs> but this option takes years. I've been practicing it for many years myself, and I'm still in deep practice of this. I still get caught up in the mind. I still get anxious. Yes. I still have these experiences. I still have moments where fear rules my life. I absolutely do. It just, you know, only takes me a few hours now to get out of it. Depending on the experience, sometimes a few minutes, sometimes a few seconds, right? In the past, it took me days, weeks, usually months to come out of one thing. It's horrible. So massive transformation on my end and it's possible for anyone. How do I know this? <laughs> because you have a brain <laughs> and all brains are plastic to some extent, meaning they're changeable, which is why it's called neuroplasticity. Neuro meaning brain, okay? Plasticity meaning changeable or malleable. So all brains are plastic. All brains, brains are changeable. Therefore, your entire um, experience of life can completely shift with practice. So presence enables us to come away from conditioning completely, therefore come away from thought completely, therefore be more present, therefore away from any possibility of anxiety. So presence is the first one, and we practice that through practicing our breath. We practice that through meditating. By meditating, coming to a meditative state, because meditation is a state, not a practice specifically, but um, you can practice it too. Okay, but the meaning of meditation is a state of being meditative. When you're meditative, it means you're in a state of full presence and awareness. When you're in awareness, you're fully conscious. Therefore, you're not having thought. You're simply observing. That's meditation. Now, the practice of meditation is, yeah, sitting down, closing your eyes, and being completely still, no matter the urge to move, no matter the urge to check your phone, no matter the urge of, I can't sit still, I can't sit still. You sit still anyway. Anyway, you sit still. Why? Because you are showing yourself that you're in control, not the mind. You're in control. You've got to prove that to yourself by choosing to sit still anyway. So that's the first way. Coming to a place where you're learning to not be the mind, 
or the body. You're learning to simply be awareness, the observer, the witness. That's a practice that you can continue day in and day out. The second way to move through anxiety is through uh, enhancing top-down control. Top-down control meaning you're, um, uh, you're moving against reaction that would normally occur instead of reaction moving against your consciousness. So bottom-up control is when anxiety happens. So when you fear something and you react, that's bottom-up control because that's based on conditioning. Top-down control is when conditioning experiences come up, like you feel scared, you move in anyway. And you can build that not just by um, developing your ability to move into um, you know, the situations that are very scary, but practicing situations that you just feel general resistance with. So in other words, you're developing integrity. So if you feel resistance to doing the laundry, to doing the dishes, to putting, picking up the sock off the floor, <laughs> to making your bed first thing in the morning, right? to having a cold shower, ooh, do them anyway. You're developing top-down control. Every time you feel resistance to working out, work out. Every time you feel resistance to going a little harder, go a little harder. Why? Because you're um, utilizing this top-down control mechanism. In doing so, you're coming to a place where you're gaining a stronger sense of integrity. Therefore, you're proving to your mind that I'm in control. When your mind realizes that you're in control, it recognizes that that means even in unknown and uncertain situations, if you're in control, that means you can trust yourself. If you can trust yourself, that means you know deep down that even if something went south or sour, you're going to be okay. Wow. If you actually recognized, if you came to a place where you developed your integrity so strong that even if the worst case scenario was to happen or if a completely unknown situation was experienced, you knew deep down that you were going to be okay. Wow. Well, there'd be no need for anxiety because the brain recognizes the fact that the threat isn't threatening enough to take your life. The brain recognizes that the threat isn't problematic enough to cause such an issue in your life. If that was the case, anxiety wouldn't need to exist in the system at all within that experience. So developing top-down control is a practice. So every time you feel resistance, you do it anyway, no matter what it is. Right, if it's eating healthy, again, choosing to sustain that. So it's basically learning to keep promises to yourself. And you do this by practicing one small thing a day. I'm going to meditate for 10 minutes every single day. Go. Let's do it. For the next seven days, you execute that perfectly. Great. Celebrate that internally. <laughs> you don't need to pop a bottle of champagne for that. It's counterproductive. Uh, and then it might be I'm going to drink two liters or three liters or maybe even up into a gallon of water right a day fantastic that's your promise that's your self-promise right and building from there and then you might execute on power lists meaning you're writing down three to five things a day that you will execute on you tick them off you smash your goals and you win that day the more days you win like that by executing on your self-promises and make them feasible and practical because if you don't you're going to go backwards and you're going to um, distrust yourself you're going to learn to not trust yourself so in other words you're developing more anxiety i've done this in the past so don't make it dumb <laughs> make it smart something that's feasible and achievable and practical for you and stick to it okay what are your three to five things maybe it's meditate 10 minutes a day i'm going um 10 minutes today i'm going to have a cold shower today i'm going to read 10 pages of my book today and i'm 
going to not have a cheat meal today. Great. If you can do those four things, you get to tick all four of those off. You kept your promises today. Wow. That's a win. Start with one thing and then build it up. Even if it's just make your bed in the morning. Fantastic. That was your promise to yourself. You achieved it. Validate that internally because only with self-validation will it actually mean anything. Doesn't mean you need to feel any different. That's not the case. It's about practicing self-validation. You're developing self-integrity and self-trust. Now there's a secondary factor to the second part. Because top-down control is not just about developing it through all these different things that I've just shared. The most profound way we can do that is actually, because there's actually many layers to self-integrity, is actually by leaning into the thing we're most resistant to and that would normally trigger us. So I'm not saying that if you are terrified of, you know, speaking to this person that you like, that you go and do it now, all right? Because you're probably going to rock up and hesitate and fret and get red <laughs> and, and, and uh, um, you know, and fumble your words. So instead, I'm just also checking the time because I'm realizing I've got dinner with my family. So I'm going to shoot off very soon. Um, so I'm going to wrap up um, very briefly with uh, the next few layers, which is simply we want to come to a place where we feel more comfortable with what it is we're fearful of. Because it's not speaking to the person that I'm fearful of. It's the possibility of them rejecting me that I'm fearful of. And then, therefore, it's a feeling that I get from that. That's what I'm afraid of. So ultimately, if we actually dissect this, I'm not afraid of this person. I'm afraid of the possibility that they reject me. I make a meaning out of what that rejection is, meaning I'm not good enough. I will never find love. I'm proving myself right now that I'm never going to get the girl of my dreams or the boy of my dreams or the person of my dreams, depending on, you know, <laughs> there's so many standards now today. And ultimately, I'm uh, I'm just not worthy. These are the meanings that people are making of themselves and therefore they feel like crap. They're scared of feeling that those emotions and of having those meanings in their mind. Therefore, the figure of the fear is the person, but the reality of the fear is the experience that they don't want to have. So now here's the antidote. Coming to a place where they no longer fear the feeling. Wow, breakthrough. Only when you no longer fear the feeling of unworthiness and you no longer fear the feeling of any potential pain that might come from the rejection, only then will you no longer fear rejection and only then will you be able to actually converse with this person and talk to this person calmly and confidently because now you no longer fear the potential outcome. So you're going to have clarity. You're not going to have constant thought processes of how to not get rejected because if you focus on how to not get rejected, you're probably going to get rejected. (laughs) But if you focus on now I can have a beautiful conversation with this person, you can focus on how can I connect with this person more profoundly. Man, it's going to be a thing of beauty. I moved through my fear of flying Not because I feared flying, but I feared whenever turbulence occurred, I made a meaning in my mind that that means the plane was going to go down and crash and I was going to die. So I used to, yes, hyperventilate, clench my um, hands on my knees, and I used to pray to God, please God, please God, please God, all these different things that I'd say. And I couldn't listen to music, I couldn't watch a movie, nothing, whenever a turbulence was there because I had to focus on praying. (laughs) That's yes, where I was. And over time, by not just exposing myself to flying, 
but actually coming to a place where I learned to feel the feeling that came up within me, which is the fear. Once I felt the fear, I learned to actually allow any images or thoughts that flowed through my mind to flow. I let them flow. And I I learned how to desensitize myself from these images and thoughts by learning to let them be there and not react to them. So I calmed my body, relaxed my body. I let myself feel the fear of death. (laughs) Yes, it sounds dark. I let myself think the thoughts of death. Yes, it sounds dark. I thought the thoughts of the plane going out. I let, let my body and my mind do this stuff. Because by doing it, I eventually came to a place where I was de- more desensitized to this, meaning that I no longer feared it, meaning that when the worst turbulence happens now, it doesn't even phase me. I can still watch my movie, listen to my music, and be in a place of peace. Why? Because I've learned to lean in, organized top-down control around this situation. An example that people usually resonate with is the spider on the table example I like to give. It's a great metaphor. If I had a spider on the table right next to you, say there was a hypothetical table next to you and a spider popped up, most people would freak out, right? Run for the hills. (laughs) Now, if you ran for the hills every single time, you're never going to overcome the fear of the spider because you you haven't faced it. In fact, you're going to get more scared of spiders because you've just had a traumatic experience of there's a spider, that means it's going to bite me, therefore it's going to be painful or I'm going to die. (laughs) So I ran. So you're proving to yourself that it's dangerous. However, if one time you chose to sit there and the spider just popped up on the table and it just stayed there, didn't do anything, because of course the spider's more scared of you than it is of it, than you are of it, okay? Um, I mean, you're so much bigger than it, (laughs) you're like 100 times the size, 200 times, 1,000 times, depending on the spider. You're freaking scary, mate. It's just trying to protect its life. Now, the spider's chilling, and you're chilling. It's like, hey, it's actually not as bad as I thought. Now... Let's just say, okay, cool. Now you got a little scared, so you moved away. Now next time another spider shows up on your table, you're going to be a little less afraid of it because you've just proved to yourself previously that the spider wasn't so bad after all. You're going to get less anxiety. And then next time, even less again. Then next time, even less again. Why? Because you're exposing yourself to the truth that the spider isn't actually a threat. It's actually okay. I don't know if you've ever seen this lady on TikTok. She's called like the bee lady or something. She literally puts her hands into hives and picks up bees with her bare hands with no protection. Why? Because she's so calm. And because they read chemistry, human chemistry, meaning she's not feeling anxious, I don't feel threatened by her because anxiousness is fight or fight, freeze or flight. So meaning that they don't feel like she's trying to fight. Right? So they don't do anything. They don't sting nothing. Spiders are the same. So if you're in a state of calmness, the spider's not going to do anything. You see people on YouTube with spiders crawling all over them, they do nothing. The spider does nothing. So, But that's not the point I'm getting to. Ultimately, um, over time, as you become more desensitized to the spider being there, you feel calmer with it being there. And then eventually you end up like my friend who woke up and saw a huntsman spider when she was was in Australia, and she saw a huntsman spider on her bedside table. And she just rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> and you Aussies are probably like, yeah, it's, there's nothing. Anyone else in the world is like, frick, no. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Hell, nope. A big bowl of nope. And yeah, that's because they're desensitized to it. So they've exposed themselves enough to it. So these are the steps you can start to take. The first is practice on a daily basis, closing your eyes, 
and visualizing not just the experience that you're afraid of, but the potential worst case scenario outcome that you're afraid of. As you do this, as you practice this, you learn to desensitize yourself from it. Let yourself feel the feelings, think the thoughts, and get overwhelmed. Let yourself go through that process. And as you do, stick with the thought, stick with the process, stick with the worst case scenario, stick with the feeling, stay with it, stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. And you become less, you can be desensitized to it, which means you're coming to a state where you don't fear it as much. And a beautiful thing happens. When you walk into the room, in the dark room, that you'd normally look into the corner and see a coil and think, snake, you finally in this process, you're actually turning on the lights. And then you realize, oh, it's just a coil of rope. Oh, it's okay. When you start to recognize that this isn't actually going to kill you, you start to become a lot more safe within yourself and desensitized. That's the first step. You practice this, practice this, practice this. The second step is start to visualize success. Because when you start to fear it less, now you're more now it's more um, probable that you'll be able to maintain a visualization of you succeeding what it is you want to do. It's like you're not going to stand on stage um, and not speak about something that you haven't either rehearsed or know a lot about, right? <laughs> I mean, you could, but anxiety, right? Because it's unknown, it's uncertain. So when you rehearse in your mind about how you want it to play out, you feel more confident. That's the second step. You can do this process constantly, constantly, constantly. The third step, okay, is when you're in an opportunity, opportune moment, you've got one of two choices. One, don't take action yet because if you don't feel if you possibly can, that's okay. Practice feeling the feelings that come up as if you're about to. And actually allowing yourself to feel the fear. Feel it, feel it, feel it. Open yourself up to it. Breathe into it. Right? And then the final step is actually doing it. And you might be exposed to that situation a few more times. Say it's social anxiety. Okay, you might be. You might have gone through the process of um, realizing that social anxiety is not the fear of society. It's the fear that those people might judge you, or those people might harm you, or do something bad to you, right? And therefore, it's your experience that comes from the potential experience that comes from being in society, not from society itself that you're afraid of. So it's the experience that you're afraid of. So when you desensitize yourself to the experience a little more, you feel a little bit more safe. You're like, okay, you know what? I'm going to be okay. Um, you visualize yourself succeeding in that environment. So at that party, okay? Now a party comes along and you're invited or you're not invited or whatever, right? And you want to go along to it. You cheeky bugger. I'm just kidding. And what you can do is um, instead of just going straight into and diving head first, um, which you can, and I'd recommend that if you can, the, um, the bridge option, the in-between option is to um, feel the anticipation of wanting to go but not feeling like you can and be open and receptive to that feeling. Feel it fully. Become more desensitized to it. Take some deep breaths. Sit up straight. Okay. Take some deep breaths and feel it fully. Close your eyes. Be with it. And as you desensitize yourself to it, maybe the next time, that opportunity comes up, then you'll be able to lean into the social experience. So those, my friends, are the steps to overcoming anxiety. And this works with anything that you feel anxiety around, no matter the depth of the trauma, because the trauma at the end of the day 
is quite literally groups of neurons in the brain, in the system, that are firing during a, an experience that either triggers the memory or triggers or an, is, represents an experience that represents something similar to that of that memory. That is it. So long as you can come to a place where you can feel safe in the potential consequence that that represents, anxiety is no longer necessary in the brain or body. Therefore, the brain and body don't need to produce a massive amount of stress. Therefore, you don't go into anxiety. It's quite literally that straightforward. Harder than it sounds, obviously. I'm very aware of that. It takes a, long, a lot of practice, a long time of practice. In fact, I highly recommend working with someone over a long period of time so you've got the guidance and the accountability to overcome this. I work with various people. I work with the CEO of Skill Capital. I work, I've worked with the CEO of Creative Dreams Agency. Um, I work with various other fantastic business leaders as well. And I do this not because, um, you know, yeah, of course they want the guidance and they want the understanding, but also it's the accountability that's the most important factor when it comes into this, um, this aspect of it. Because by having that accountability there, there's a constant focus on actually doing it, moving through, here's the step-by-step process. So it doesn't have to be me, it can be anyone. Having a, um, a constant sense of support along the way is so vital and so crucial. I couldn't have done this on my own. I did this with a lot of support from my coach, my mentor. In fact, I've even got two mentors now. <laughs> um, so I've also worked with two Buddhist monks who have really enabled me to come to this place. So I've had a lot of support along the way alongside my friends uh, and many people I've worked with. So I've had a lot of support in my life to come to where I am. I'd invite that you do the same. If you're interested in working with me, you can go to healingwithkids.com, right? More importantly, um, or just as importantly, um, I'd like to invite that um, you feel into what it is that you need, right? And then you ask yourself, where can I find what it is that I need and support for what it is that I need, right? And if that feels like my message and your need aligns, then please do reach out. So, that is it, guys. That is it. If you found that this was helpful, if you found you learned something, you gained anything, you chuckled because Kieran is dry as hell, (laughs) then please uh, do share it with someone. Not only because, firstly, this is free. I don't run ads. I don't ask for any payment. The only real payment or fee is that you do share it with someone if you gained anything from it. If you didn't, hey, that's all good. Just don't listen to Kezra again, eh? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Listen to me. Come to my podcast. Because um, I want to do, I do want to expand it, get the message out there more and really help more people. So yes, it's a win-win, right? You get to pay the fee, uh, which is just a free thing, which is just tell a friend or um, just mention when people start to notice a change. Oh man, I've been listening to this podcast. That'd be fantastic. Helps us grow, helps us expand, helps us reach more people that need this information because it's crucial that this information gets to the people that need it most. If you share it on your Instagram, on your story, fantastic. You can screen record, it's great. And you can get little snippets (laughs) and you can share it like that. So there's many ways to do it. But um, subscribing, rating, uh, these things help tremendously because it helps us reach more people as well. Um, So yeah, I'm wishing you all the best. I love you very much. You guys are absolutely fantastic. Thank you for tuning in once again. All my love. Take care. I'll see you on the other side. So I do this for you.